Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This lecture on Hannah Arendt is coming to you from a remote location where we're all very safe. No, no crowd tonight, but I thought it would be good to keep doing the lectures and, uh, you know, give us something to think about and ponder as we go through these difficult times. But speaking of difficult times, I think when you look at the life of a thinker like Hannah Arendt, what you realize is that... Um, you know, it's not that bad uh, because, you know, born in Germany in 1906 as a Jewish woman, you, you like Jaspers, you look at those dates and you look at her position and you think, wow, um, this is going to be troubling. She's, she's in for a long haul and she was, but she did amazing work throughout her life. And I think this is one of the things that's so astounding about thinkers like um, Hannah Arendt and, and, and Carl Jaspers is that in the midst of unbelievable turmoil, personal law sacrifice, they still worked. They still managed to produce and find the joy and energy and interest in their, in the passions of their thinking that then they were able to share uh, with the world. And so I think we can take a lot of heart from that and from her example. Um, and particularly in her case, uh, you know, her example of being such a clear, concise, and unique thinker. Now, she didn't like to call herself a philosopher because she felt like she had abandoned philosophy or left philosophy um, to become more or less a political scientist. But she really wasn't anything. I mean, this is one of the keys to understanding uh, her work is that she she was not associated with anything in particular. She didn't feel that she had to please anybody in particular. And so she consistently throughout her life, <clears throat> and certainly after she had left Germany, she left Germany in 1933, pursued a, 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 an ever-developing um, intellectual life in which whatever occurred to her at the moment is what she was interested in and what she was going to work on. And she would pursue that to the best of her abilities until she completed it and then moved on to something else. I mean, she, she truly moved from interest to interest, always with this incredibly unique style. And, and that's one of the things I want to focus on for, for her, for, because in, in her life, she really seemed uh, to reject abstract, broad thinking. And this is when, when you read her, there's a certain clarity because she's very interested in particular. She wrote a lot about history, um, but not that she was really a historian, but she was always, if you, she was always interested in very specific, particular moments, places, people, things, ideas, rather than trying to come up with these grand schematic overviews of the history of the world and development and all this. She's sort of an ultimate anti-Hegelian. Um, and the reason she calls herself not a philosopher and rather something else like a political scientist is because she thought that that's what philosophy was, or at least that's what philosophy had become in her time. That you had the models of people like Hegel and Kant who were trying to come up with these uh, huge categorical systems with all these rules and schemas, and then you fit everything into the schemas. Uh, for Hannah, she thought that this really uh, sort of undercut uh, the immediacy and the complexity of human existence. And she was really focused in on the human and the particularities of being human. So uh, raised in Germany, went to a prodigy basically in her entire life. She was always bright, recognized as being bright. Uh, she did very well, but you know, she, she was going to college during the difficult years of the Weimar Republic when you know, poverty uh, stalks the land and complete instability, and yet she produced work of an amazingly high quality 
um, throughout that time. Her, her dissertation was on the uh, Thomas Aquinas theory of love, in which she more or less argues that Thomas Aquinas is not really a theologian, which is an interesting argument. But again, she was looking at the particulars of his arguments and concepts um, against the backdrop of sort of the theological infrastructures and these grand schemata that had grown up around it. And she was trying to sort of, in a way, a part of what she was doing, she was doing many things, of course, she was trying to uh, sort of rescue the particularities of of Aquinas' work. Uh, and so when uh, Arendt goes and, and, and starts looking into this, she's like, you know, there's a particularities of his love that are being lost in all these theological abstractions. And so even from her earliest works, there was this uh, critical focus on um, getting rid of the schema and the infrastructure and sort of the institutional, I think it's fair to say, the institutional uh, nonsense that gets ta- thrown on for reasons that have nothing to do with the philosopher or the thinker or the person. Um, famously, she was, as I mentioned last time, uh, in the Jaspers lecture, she was uh, a student of both Martin Heidegger and Carl Jaspers, which, you know, pretty two, two amazing and influential thinkers in their day. And it's you can see the influence of both of them in her thinking, but she was very much a unique thinker. Um, you can see parts of their ideas come in. You can see a lot of influence from Jasper's outlook, not necessarily Jasper's work itself, but his outlook uh, is in her writings. But already, and I think the reason that both of them were very much attracted to her, Heidegger, of course, had an affair with her, but intellectually attracted to her, um, is that her mind was so powerful and unique and incisive that you know you wanted to, you wanted to work with her, you wanted to be with her because she was just brilliant. Um, and that brilliance is also, by the way, I think part of her downfall. Because she loved the particular, um, she tended to upset everybody all the time. And that's one of the things I want to look at as we go through some of her major works, is her ability to piss off even the people you would think would be her native supporters. But she knew she was going to do this because she consistently said that basically, if you have, once you sort of subscribe to any theory, once you subscribe to a party or an institution or a group and you let that determine your thinking, you've basically given up a significant part of your humanity. That thinking for ourselves, talking to people, researching, reaching out, participating, she was not one to withdraw from life, far from it, but that what you needed to do was always try and maintain freedom of thought. And once you said, well, I had better agree with this because that allows me to keep my job or allows me to move forward in my career or keeps from upsetting my friends, she, she was not your woman. I mean, no way. She was, she was never going to do that. She, she might be okay with being wrong, um, but she would never be okay with going along and just thinking uh, because this is what other people said. In fact, this was one of her big fears. She thought this was, as we'll see, one of the roots of totalitarianism. And sort of, I, I thought I would start in, in sort of backwards because because uh, I think it's helpful to understand um, a lot of what her career was about if you reflect back on um, some of her more controversial moments and you can see what's going on here. So uh, she wrote a, an essay on the Brown versus Board of Education on desegregation. <clears throat> and the outcome of this and some of her other writings um, is she's been accused of being a racist because she was opposed to the forced integration of public schools. She thought this was a mistake and that the Supreme Court had made a mistake in doing this. And this is where 
um, you, you know, a, a rinse thinking is just so uh, powerful because, you know, as I grew up, and most of us grew up, of course, you know, uh, Brown versus Board of Education, one of those foundational decisions comes down from the Supreme Court. We know that was good. Segregation was bad. Great. You know, there's the good guys. Here's the bad guys. And we know what to think about this. And we're off, right? Basically, we don't have to think about it. Well, she was not going to not think about it. And because she was a, a, a basically a Jewish refugee, uh, very progressive in many of her ideas, of course, almost all of her friends, acquaintances, the people she knew, were thought she had lost her mind. Like, what are you talking about? Of course you have to be in favor of this. This is just the most obvious thing. But for her, it was not obvious at all. And she makes a couple of points, whether you agree with her or not, that's not what's important. But she makes a couple of really great points um, and that, that I think highlight the clarity of her reflection on this. So one of the points she makes that really resonated with me when I worked through this essay quite slowly is she said, right, she, by the way, it's important to note, she thinks legal segregation should be overturned, totally and completely opposed to legal segregation uh, in all of its manifestations. And so you'll see articles that say, oh, you know, she was against desegregation. That's not true. She thought that there should be no laws that, allowed people to be segregated. She thought that was wrong. Her issue and what she was looking at was social segregation. Where do you draw those lines and when is it people's right to decide who they want to spend time with? And she felt in a free society, free association was one of those core principles. Uh, and she thought that forced integration of the schools was essentially damaging that principle. Now, you can argue that the integration was more important than the principle of free association, but this is a very interesting point nonetheless. A second aspect of this, which, I, which is the one that really resonated with me, was she said, if you want to do this, why are you starting with the children? The ch the, why are you making the most vulnerable, the weakest people, take on this incredibly difficult, daunting social task? You know, she said she just thought it was an embarrassment that you would put this burden on children to work out, that you would force them to go through the stress and the strain rather than choose other aspects of society. She thought, for instance, the fact that there were laws against miscegenation that blacks and whites couldn't marry. Um, she thought that one, A, those should have been overturned, um, and B, that that's what you should start looking at. It's like, hey, we need to look at things that influence adults. And so part of her thing on this is she said, look, there's a political realm. That's the realms of law and, and, and acting in the government. <clears throat> and she said that's absolutely wrong for there to be laws about segregation politically. So it again is why she thought, hey, they should go after the miscegenation laws because clearly if two adults want to get married, they should absolutely have that right. And to have laws that prevent that, um, by the way, which weren't overturned for decades, um, you know, that is the real crime. And then she thought there was a private realm. Now, the private realm is what you do in your own apartment, your home, with your friends. And she said, certainly the government can't force you to um, integrate there. They can't tell you who you should choose, basically, to have as your friends. That's wrong. Your family and your friends, you know, that's, that's up to you how you choose to construct those circles. But then she said there's this third space, which is the social space. The space is not totally political and it's not totally private, but it's that weird mix. Like, you know, should movie theaters and museums be totally integrated? She thought, yeah, those were social spheres that should be integrated. So 
um, what she does, she takes something that everybody thought was clear-cut, and she raises these sort of profound issues. Um, but by the way, again, just to be clear, she thought legal segregation was, a, was an abomination and should be eliminated, and she went much further uh, than what many other thinkers were at the time, for instance, when she talked about miscegenation. The point that she ends up making, which I think, or another point she ends up making, and they're interesting, is she said she does not think this is going to work. I mean, there's both the problem of ethics, right, free association, but also the problem that, look, you, it's almost impossible for the government to deploy enough force in a society that you want to live in to make people do this. And sure enough, here we are, um, whatever we are, 60 years later now from Brown versus Board of Education, and in many parts of the country, the schools are still incredibly segregated. They had the institution of white flight, so on, you know, all of the sorts of school boundary issues, charter schools. I mean, we have all of this whole history of this incredibly complex world of school segregation, which is crazy in a theoretically free country where everybody can go anywhere, and yet our school systems are still, you know, more or less as segregated as they've ever been in many places, in, in much of the country, not just a little bit of the country, but much of the country. And so her pragmatism, both her ethics, which is to say, hey, we have values here, we want to think about them, and then her pragmatism to say, is this going to work? She thought no. She said she basically thought this, this is not functional. So you're imposing this huge burden on children. You're forcing the government to bring force against its people. Always one thing you want to be really concerned about. She's coming from Nazi Germany. She's seen this. And you're doing something that probably isn't going to work anyway. And so, you know, when you look at it historically, you go, wow, that's a lot to take in. She really thought about that clearly. And again, you can disagree with her and say, no, we think maybe that was necessary. That's, that's fine. In fact, I don't think she minded that people disagree with her. She minded that no one seemed to be disagreeing, that everyone seemed to see, well, there we go. This is the right thing. She's like, wait, we shouldn't all just go along. Here's some other issues to ponder. And so she offended a lot of people. Even now, you'll find, like I said, essays and articles saying, oh, well, she's a racist. She's against desegregation. Again, not true. Um, you know, and, and but she was just trying to open her eyes and be very realistic about this. So, you know, that that is something to be clear. But she irritates pretty much everybody pretty much all the time because she never is with your program. Whatever your program is, if you read uh, Hannah Arendt, you'll get lots of great insight, and then you'll get something that just irritates you. And you go, wait, what? And you go, oh, oh, yeah, look at that. Yeah, she's making a good point there. Something that I thought, well, that's really easy to understand or very well grounded, like, you know, Brown versus Board of Education, got to integrate those schools. She's, I'm like, oh, well, you know, let's have a little deeper ponder there. Uh, not from a, you know, she's not conservative. She's not liberal. She, you could say maybe progressive, but she really was her. That's who she was. Uh, and not, not a member of any particular group or party. But her, the clarity of the insights this brought was because her mind was so brilliant and powerful uh, and gives you all kinds of passages that are relevant today. Another example of her uh, work, famous work, getting her in trouble, um, is Eichmann in Jerusalem. Um, so this was another sort of cause celeb, but gives her this, this exploration of her mind. So um, Eichmann was, uh, had, had basically run the logistics for the death camps for the Nazis. Um, and so he was extradited to Israel to stand trial for that crime. Um, and again, how do you understand this? Look, this is clear. This is not a problem. He's evil. The Nazis are evil. You send him to Jerusalem. You find him guilty. You execute him or put him in jail for life. 
End of subject. He's a baddie. We're the goodies. The trial is for us to celebrate our triumph of good over evil. You know, it's just like medieval. Put him in the blocks, drag him through town, throw tomatoes and rotten vegetables at him, and then hang him in the square. That's what we're doing here. Um, but of course, she was not going to go for this. She wanted to go and see. So she, again, the particular, she wanted to be there. And what she found, and she coined this phrase that got her in trouble, and got her in trouble with many people in many ways, is she called it the banality of evil. And, and uh, other scholars have commented that she really should have said the banality of Eichmann. But the, the, what she was trying to get at here was, look, Eichmann is not an evil person. He did, they, they could find no evidence that he particularly hated Jews or was even particularly anti-Semitic. He was not like some crazy Nazi. He didn't seem to really uh, embrace any of the ideals or ideology or anything like that about the Nazi party. He was just a guy who was doing his job. He turned out to be really good at logistics and was sort of this cipher, this intellectually vacant cipher. He was just a bureaucrat who happened to be instrumental in killing six million people. And, and so she's going, look, don't make him out to be this super Nazi that we want him to be. We want him to be this raging anti-Semite who had, you know, Hitler tattooed on his chest and, you know, marched in all of the flag-waving ceremonies, but he wasn't that guy at all. He was just someone who was really good at organizing logistics, got transferred to the death camp department, and boom, there you go. Look look how efficiently I can kill six million people. And that is really much harder to come to grips with, and that's what she wanted to come to grips with. She wanted to get in there and say, this is a big, dangerous, scary problem. How many you know, sociopaths are there in the world? It turns out that there's more than we would like, but probably a pretty finite number. In fact, one of the reasons they had to come up with the death camps is they had regular soldiers just starting to sh exterminate people with guns. The, the, it, it, it damaged the soldiers, which is, you know, I think, as you would hope, um, most soldiers were not able to do that. They couldn't do it. They just, like, shooting innocent people bothered them so much. Um, and so one they had to do is start selecting for soldiers who could do it, and they had to find a different, more efficient way. And, and so the number of just pure sociopaths in the world who will just murder innocent people under orders turns out to be, thankfully, not zero, as you would hope, um, but not a lot. Ah, problematically, it turns out there's a lot of people like Eichmann. That's the scary thing about evil. evil. It's not the raving sociopath. It's not the mass murderer. It's the person who's doing the filing for the mass murdering. It's the person who's doing the train schedules. It's the person who makes it all possible and then says, well, I was just doing my job, right? Well, this, Hannah Arendt was trying to get at that. And she said that was her phrase, the banality of evil. What do you do with somebody? What, how do you address someone who, who thinks this way, who lives this way. And she makes this brilliant insight about him, if I can find the quote here. Um, got my papers mixed up here. Uh, here we go. Um, quote, this is from Eichmann in Jerusalem. <clears throat> he was genuinely incapable of uttering a single sentence that was not a cliché. 
Eichmann, despite his rather bad memory, repeated word for word the same stock phrases and self-invented cliches. The longer one listened to him, the more obvious it became that his inability to speak was closely connected with an inability to think, namely to think from the standpoint of somebody else. No communication was possible with him, not because he lied, because he was, but because he was surrounded by the most reliable of all safeguards against the words and the presence of others, and hence against reality as such. And, and notice the emphasis on thinking. She thought thinking and independent thought was so important that what she thought was most deplorable in Eichmann was he just couldn't do it. He had been so brainwashed by propaganda and was so intellectually uh, vacant, just so intellectually disinterested in the world that, you know, he didn't seem that there was any problems at all. It was just, that was just fine. You know, he could, not, not because, again, there was no mental conflict for him because he was incapable of mental conflict. And so this is what drove her crazy. So when everybody says, oh, yeah, desegregation is great. We've got to do it. This is the best way because that's just the way it is. She's like, no, 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 no. Hey, let's all take a breath and think about that. Maybe, but should we all be agreeing about everything all the time? I don't think so. Um, and this, it, this comes up repeatedly in her works as the inability or the unwillingness of people um, to explore ideas, to, to um, think for themselves, to think independently. And also notice the, the passage on language, the way he, sp he speaks in cliches. Um, and, and this is important because as someone who teaches writing, I tell my students, when you write a cliche, what you're, you're not thinking, you're not writing, you're putting someone else's thoughts on the page. And so you don't know what you're saying because you haven't created the thought. What you're doing is you're not thinking. You're writing by not thinking, which is, which is incredible and dangerous. But if you want to express yourself and explore your ideas, you have to begin to search in for yourself for the kind of language you want to use, the particular words that you're trying to bring out. And, and that focus on his inability, in this case, Eichmann's inability to express himself clearly and individually, that he would ever say something that you didn't sound like it just came from, from a top of a newspaper headline, uh, was stunning to her. And she saw this as a particular threat of the mass media, by the way, of which she was no big fan. Because that slipping into thought cliche, just all of a sudden, you know, you're again, you stop thinking. You just put a cliche in for every moment. Oh, you know, this is good, this is bad, that's right, this is wrong. You know, long live the Reich, thousand-year Reich, we're doing this for... right. And it's like, well, what does a thousand-year Reich mean? Who is a thousand-year Reich? Um, just to give you an example, just today, because the markets are kind of going crazy, I said to somebody, well, you know, what are the markets, right? Everybody talks about the markets. What do we actually mean when we say that? And it turns out that it's really hard to track that down. So I've been pondering on that. But then I started, because I've been reading, of course, for this lecture, I started looking at how many times people are using the word markets, which is a lot because, of course, they're going crazy. And they're using them in like 50 different ways. And it's often just being tossed out as a way of trying to point to something about the way the economy works without ever articulating that. And because no one's articulating that, it just becomes this big vacant cliche. Oh, the markets are this, the markets are that, the markets this, they did that, they did. I mean, who is the, are the, is it an actor? Is it a response? Yeah. So anyway, that sort of 
just consistent, insipid use of thought cliches, she thought, leads to someone like Eichmann, who can just use those thought cliches to insulate themselves from ever actually pondering. He said he didn't experience psychic dissonance because he can't. It just wasn't there. And for her, that was the evil. And so when she wrote this and the other aspects of the book, it really upset people because they're like, what are you talking about? No, no, you know, he's a bad, evil man. He did these terrible things. He's, you know, he's, he's, he's like, no, stop trying to vilify him. Stop trying to make it seem like he's not the guy that lived next door to you. Because to her, that was much more terrifying. It's much more terrifying to think the guy that's friendly and maybe come over and mow your lawn when you're not at home on the weekend or something, goes to work and then schedules the trains to the gas chamber. Right, that's a totally different kind of terror. <clears throat> and so again, the specificity of the issues and her ability to think clearly and deeply about them upset a lot of people. I mean, who's? I mean, who does this argument make happy? Basically, no one but her, and that was enough. And her friends. I should mention, by the way, she was very close to her friends. She always had tight circle of very intimate friends. Um, and that was basically her true audience. I mean, she would, her and her husband, they would share ideas. She would bounce ideas off of him, very much like Jaspers did with his wife, uh, Arenta did with her husband. They they were you know definitely interlocutors about their ideas and work and reflection. Uh, Jaspers had the same relationship with his wife. She she helped him immensely um, to articulate his ideas, to talk through them, to read through them, um, to, you know, criticize them, open them up, these kinds of things. They're her ideas, but explored with her friends and developed that way. But basically beyond her own sense of intellectual, um, honesty and clarity, you know, audience be damned, you know, if people didn't like it, well, you know, that she's doing her best. And she's not also, by the way, she's never saying that she's absolutely right. She's just saying she thinks she's right for now until she thinks something else. Another example here um, is is her, her concern with the clarity of thinking and the freedom of thinking is to talk about the free press. So here's a quote um, from an article she wrote on the free press. She says, the moment we no longer have a free press, anything can happen. What makes it possible for totalitarian or any other dictatorship to rule is that people are not informed. How can you have an opinion if you are not informed? If everybody always lies to you, the consequence is not that you believe the lies, but rather that nobody believes anything any longer. See, that's a great insight. It's not that you're believing the lies, you're not believing some lies and disbelieving other lies. It's that nobody believes anything. And a people that no longer can believe anything cannot make up its mind. It is deprived not only of its capacity to act, but also of its capacity to think and to judge. And with such a people, you can do then you can do with them what you please, basically. So what do you, if you can't think about anything because you think everything is lies, what do you have to appeal to? Basically emotion, uh, raw animal instincts, these sorts of things. And she was terrified of that for, you know, obvious good reasons coming out of World War II. That, you know, if, if, if people don't believe anything and think everything is a lie, then how do you supposed to respond to the world? You can't think your way through it because everything is false. So you, so you just have to feel your way through it, that, that just you're, we're just going to go for the emotion all the time and exploit that. And of course, then everybody is just going to spend all their time exploiting people's emotions. And then, you know, danger, danger, right? This is clearly a sign of people being manipulated and not thinking. So the problem with uh, propaganda and not trusting anything that you're receiving is Again, not that you th 
believe something that's not true is that you've learned to not believe anything. And therefore, there's no way to articulate or ponder or reflect on the world. And so it, just believing everything that comes from one place is one kind of error. Not believing anything that comes from anywhere is another kind of error. Um, and this is an idea that she pursued on the book that kind of made her reputation. If you know her, you probably know uh, The Origins of Totalitarianism, which is a remarkable work. And and just it's it's sort of unique because she's not a historian, she's not a political scientist, she's not really a philosopher, um, she's just a thinker. And it is the exploration of someone really thinking hard about the question, where does totalitarianism come from, particularly in the forms of fascist Germany and uh, Soviet Russia, Stalinist Russia, right? How does this work? How did it develop? What does it have to do with the Jews? Why the Jews in particular? And, you know, you can just pick it up and read almost any page and you will find some idea that, that just jumps out at you. And again, there's parts of this for which she was very much criticized um, and, and parts for which she's been very much praised. But it is this central important work and trying to understand and ponder the nature of totalitarianism. Um, and following on the previous quote from her Reflections on a Free Press, here's a quote from The Origins of Totalitarianism. <clears throat> a mixture of gullibility and cynicism has been an outstanding characteristic of mob mentality before it became an everyday phenomenon of the masses. In an ever-changing, incomprehensible world, the masses had reached the point where they would, at the same time, believe everything and nothing, think that everything is possible and that nothing was true. The mixture in itself was remarkable enough because it spelled the end of illusion that gullibility was a weakness of unsuspecting primitive souls and cynicism the vice of superior and refined minds. Mass propaganda discovered that its audience was ready at all times to believe the worst, no matter how absurd, and did not particularly object to being deceived because it held every statement to be a lie anyhow. The totalitarian mass leader based their propaganda on the correct psychological assumption that, under such conditions, one could make people believe the most fa fantastic statements one day and trust if the next day they were given irrefutable proof of their falsehood, they would take refuge in his cynicism. Instead of deserting the leaders who lied to them, they would protest that, that they had known all along that the statement was a lie and would admire the leaders for their superior tactical cleverness. I mean, think about this. This is, this is incredible um, that you can uh, sort of create a situation in which individuals respond to lies by thinking that it's great that you've made a lie. So this, you know, people talked about this with Hitler and Stalin. It was clear that they kept making statements that were just not true. And yet it didn't seem to bother people. People seemed to be okay with that. And that's something that, because we think of propaganda as something that deceives and gets everybody to believe something and to go along with something, and then, uh-oh, the truth will out, right? The, the daring reporters will get the story, and they'll break the secret, and then the secret will be out in the open, and then everyone will go, oh my gosh, I can't believe we were deceived. We're going to turn on our leaders, and we're going to pursue a new world. Well, that's lovely to believe, uh, but it turns out that that exploration is very much different in the, her model that she explores, but by the way, I think that second quote might have been from Eichmann in Jerusalem, but she also explores this idea in the origins of uh, totalitarianism. Um, the concept is much more insidious. It's like, whoa, 
what do you do with a population who thinks the lies are either funny or actually gives you points for lying? Who actually thinks that, oh, the successful lie, the entertaining lie, the lie that achieved whatever it was the leader was trying to achieve is great, even if the lie is at my expense. See, there, you can't expose that. The, what, what do you do? How does, how, you know, the, the, even if the press does report, oh, well, that's not true. This is factually inaccurate. It doesn't have an impact. We shouldn't expect it to have an impact. According to, to Arendt, she says, look, you know, when you get to this place, there, there's so much psychic, um, you know, confusion and stress on people, then they will stop judging things under this category of truth and lies and then start judging under other categories, which are, of course, um, again, much more emotional, much more difficult to get at. And then what will cause the breakdown then has to be something that's an emotional break, something that's a psychological blow, not something that has any basis in fact or reality or truth, because those things have been left far behind. And that's just, uh, you know, an unbelievably different world as far as she was concerned. The counterexample, by the way, would be the Roman bread and circuses. I mean, that's the classic maxim of the Rome, right? You keep the people fed, you keep the people entertained, and basically life will go along. People, you know, will put up with a lot of other problems. Ah, but in Rome, and this was true, when something happened to the bread supply or to the cost of bread, or you couldn't hold circuses, later in the in the in the imperial period uh, they got restless i mean there was they had problems right they they were insurrection this, this 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 was not just it wasn't just a maxim because they're like oh this concrete palpable physical good i know and i'm going to go with that when you've moved into the modern world um, boy it's much more complicated because we deal so much with abstractions we deal so much more often with ideas and concepts um, rather than that sort of base level uh, uh, experience. And so it's very much more difficult to form accurate judgments and assessments of the world around us, which of course makes us much more open to being manipulated by various forces who want us to not think, hence her emphasis on thinking. And so when she goes to the origins of totalitarianism, She's trying to figure out how do you get to the place where you have enough people who are thinking like this that they can just take over a country, or in this case, a couple of countries. Um, and her conclusions are all over the map, and she comes up with all kinds of observations. But it's, it basically rolls around this core notion of this impulse that leads to masses behaving in ways that are not just irrational, but like rationality is not, is like super rational. I don't even, I'm not even sure how to conceptualize. I couldn't find a good word in her text, but the idea is that rationalism is no longer a metric. So if you're irrational, that means you're opposed to rationalism where you're not rational. But this is not, rationalism is just gone. It's like not even any place to be seen. And, and she, you know, again, like with Eichmann there, she was terrified by this, the masses who, who aren't thinking. Other aspects, by the way, in uh, Origins of Totalitarianism are quite controversial. And again, she's been accused of racism on this because she, she talked about imperialism. Uh, and people, she talks about the Dark Continent, not a phrase that we like to use anymore. She talks about primitive Africans. Again, you know, a, a disparaging phrase. 
But if, if you actually read the sections on imperialism, one, she was very clear, she was not pro-imperialism. She was quite clear that, generally speaking, this was an exploitative relationship. Um, she, you know, you basically accused the French of just trying to use their colonies as cannon fodder to pr- protect the, the, the French homeland. Um, and, and so, you know, there are some unfortunate phrases, but if you look at her thought, what she's actually saying in the structure of her argument She's not saying that, oh, imperialism was bringing the great Western culture to Africa. She was saying, no, the Western culture had deluded itself into thinking it would be able to do this imperialist project and, in fact, went over there and just brutalized and destroyed both the, the colonies she was, they were occupying as well as doing serious damage to the republics at home. And because she was very much pro-democracy, was very much trying to work that direction and trying to maintain the republic traditions of, of participation in democratic processes, the rule of law, she thought all of these were crucial. Um, she, she found that, that imperialism is bad both for, of course, the countries that are occupied, but also for the occupying countries. It was just bad in every way. So again, much more subtle, much more complicated reflection on this, and also, in some ways, much more brutal. I mean, I th- you know, where she just looks at what was actually happening, and some of the passages are quite stark, where she just says, look, the Boers, for instance, were simply slave-holding uh, parasites. She used this word parasite. They just enslaved the local population, stopped doing anything, and became parasitic. They couldn't do anything. They were no longer productive at all. And she just thought, you know, this was this horrible, poisonous relationship that poisoned the Boers and, of course, uh, the the natives who were there when they arrived. I mean, the enslaved population. That This was bad for everybody. And she's not sympathetic to them. She's just saying this is this notion of you know bringing culture over there is just is nonsensical. It doesn't fly. It was self-delusional, and she wants to explore why those delusions existed. Um, another aspect of it, again, so many aspects to explore is on the Jewish questions because, of course, she was Jewish. She worked for Zionist causes. She was helping get people out of Germany. She was helping getting people into Israel, and yet she tended to have this vexed relationship because she would not tow any particular Jewish line. I mean, she just she wasn't going to be like a stock Zionist. She wasn't going to be a stock pro-Israeli. She was not going to be anything like that. She was going to be her own person, and so one of the things in the origin of totalitarianism, and then later with the settlement of Israel, but in the origin of totalitarianism, she's like, look, anti-Semitism was not incidental to this. It was part of it. And so she goes through this curious history of Jews in Europe in which she says, um, you know, that the special relationship that Jews had for a while made them fine-ish, in Europe, that the notion that Jews were always hated and always had the same position and that all Jews in Europe were treated similarly, she says it's just ahistorical. And that so what you want to do is look at the historical specificity at times when they were persecuted, at times when they weren't persecuted, at times when some Jews were persecuted and other Jews aren't persecuted, at times when they had a lot of power, was, you know, at times when they, when, you know, certain Jews had a lot of power and most Jews just lived, you know, in shtetls or, or on farms or agrarian or in special ghettos, right? You know, that this whole panoply needs to be explored much more richly uh, in its um, kind of specificity through time. Because she says, if you just say, oh, well, the Jews have always been hated in Europe, 
Well, that sort of gives everybody an out. It makes the Jews go, oh, great, we're always the victim. We can move on. She's like, look, that's just not true, or at least it's incomplete. Um, And if you go, well, the Europeans have always hated Jews because of the Christianity thing, well, then people can kind of shrug their shoulders and go, well, okay, great, we're not going to do that anymore, but you can't really blame us because that's just how it's always been. It's like, no, it's, it's, it's changed. It was different in different times. There's whole different dimensions to it. And trying to explore that specificity, of course, once again gets her in trouble because people on both sides um, don't want to hear that it's more complex and subtle and difficult. Um, and finally, a sort of a, 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 a parting thought here is many people have said that, um, you know, how do you pin her down? How do you give the core of her idea? And I think there is nothing you can read by her that contains sort of a central, here's Arendt's ideas. Her, her mind was fat, too fabulously rich for that, to be, to be contained that way. And she didn't want to be contained that way. She did not want to have a system. But I, I will recommend, if, if you get, I, I have to, I, you know, to recommend one book, I'd say The Penguin um, Selection, a Portable uh, Rent, is, is really good. Uh, uh, it's, it's got lots of good selections in there, material from her letters. I think you would enjoy that. Um, but what it does give you, I think if you even just flip around, read 10 pages here, five pages there, an excerpt there, a letter to Jasper's, a beautiful letter to Jasper's in there, there. Um, what you'll get is this consistent level of just concise thinking leading to insights. If there's a core to her work, I would say that's it. That her mind was so rich and varied and interested and unique and free that this really becomes the core of her philosophy. Free your mind, free your thinking, be particular. Be specific. Look at the details. Don't don't fall for the thought cliches. And I, I, you know, it's so refreshing, so liberating in a way, invigorating. I would say it might be just like cold water, you know, on a hot day, to read her mind at work because that's what you're getting. And so I can I can recommend strongly going out and, and getting one or two of the works that appeal to you. You're not going to agree with everything. There's going to be passages that probably piss you off every now and again. But boy, you'll see a first-rate mind, a great genius at work, page by page. So thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed that. And I'll try to bring some more content out as time goes on. And But I'll absolutely make sure I get the last two lectures in this series up on time. And thanks for listening, and everybody be well.